the last service, as has already been mentioned, somewhat bittersweet, and from my perspective as well. You have been so kind. You have indeed made me feel very welcome and expressed very kind thoughts, and that means a lot. It's almost like saying sick em to a dog as far as with the statements and some of the things that you've been so blessed uh, in blessing my life with. I want to express appreciation to the elders, to Randy, to any and all that have been responsible as far as for my being here at Pippin. And to get to know this congregation, I've known of you and some of the works that you've been involved in for some time. Had lunch yesterday with Don Blackwell, the executive director of GBN, and he was telling me about your support of that good work. GBN, I believe, is one of the greatest things that's come along in so many, maybe my lifetime, as far as potentially reaching the lost. We have a studio in addition to the publishing business, and we produce five or six television programs per month for GBN. And we have, at the end of the programs, our tag on there as far as contact information. And I mentioned that only to be able to say we've had responses, emails from Thailand, from Malaysia, from India, and one especially that just thrilled my heart from Afghanistan. A soldier that was able had access to a computer and gbntv.org, and he pulled that up and he said, I, you just don't know what it means to be able to hear preaching, to be able to worship on Sunday, things of that nature, no matter where you are. So truly, to reach the world, that's our goal. Jesus said, go and preach the gospel to every creature. We have that obligation. I want to tell you something. I learned as I drove up here, over here, wherever it is, and uh, directionally, it's not any further from my area to here than it is from here to my area. Did y'all know that? You know what that means? We'd love to have you come to see us. Any time that you're in that area, it would be a tremendous joy to have you worship with us or visit us. I told two or three of you that come by the printing business, we'll show you how books are made. It's called the Nickel Tour. We don't even charge you a nickel, but uh, it's kind of interesting at times, and we've been involved in it for about 40 years now. And we do everything in-house from beginning of the composition of the material to the final product, whether it be a hardback book or a paperback book. So if you can, well, come see us. We'll also show you the GBN work. We're a satellite studio for that, and thus it's kind of interesting, too, if you've never been a part of that. Thank you from my heart to your heart. For many years, many years of my life, I have been intrigued, almost captivated, over the tragic sinking of the Titanic. I know it took place 106 years ago, April. I know that hundreds died that night. I know that in hindsight, and that's easy to maybe make assessment, 2020 vision we have when it's hindsight. Hindsight tells us that it could have been prevented. 
Mistakes were made. And a lot of times it's not so much that we're going to make mistakes. We will. But oftentimes how we might learn from it. And tonight I want to talk about the Titanic, not just the mere mechanics of its construction and things about it, though if you'll indulge me for a few moments, we'll mention some of those. But much more important, I want us to talk about some spiritual lessons that we can glean, we can learn from that tragedy. It was absolutely the most phenomenal event of that time. You think in terms of 106 years ago, look even at what has changed over the last 20 or 30 years, much less the last 100 years. And truly at the turn of the, the century, there was great things that was happening. Businesses were flourishing. I mean, a lot of businesses as it pertains to railroad and manufacturing and so forth was phenomenally growing. The shipbuilding industry was extremely flourishing. The White Star Line now constructing this phenomenal vessel called the Titanic and others that went along with it about the same time. The construction took three years, over almost 2,000 people involved in it. Statistical information I can throw out that means absolutely nothing. For an example, of all the steel that was there, finished product was 46,000 tons. It had over 3 million rivets that held all of those one-inch steel plates together. In hindsight, many say today that the steel was inferior, not tempered, as we know to do today, and that caused potentially the destructive and the complete collapse, the sinking of the Titanic when it hit an iceberg. We can talk about the great things that, about it. Do you know that it took 20 horse team in order to pull one of the 15 plus ton anchors? Just the anchors alone. It was made up of a 24 boiler, double ended boiler, that each of those weighed approximately 100 tons. They would produce about 50,000 horsepower. Now, I'm a muscle car guy. I go back to those particular days and I, I relate to horsepower. 50,000, but that. But that means nothing because when you're talking about 46,000 tons, even 50 horsepower, 24 of them, and it still would only go 25 miles an hour. But 25 miles an hour in a ship that is 882 feet and a half long and making a right turn takes about a half a mile. And as we think about all of those things, the most important that I might tell you was it was innovative, meaning they had determined that they were going to have bulkheads in the bottom of it, individually, 16 of them all together, and their theory was that even if for whatever reason it might be that water would come into those bulkheads, it would maybe only fill two or three of them, and they had it calculated that several of them could be filled and still not sink, and thus not by the White Star Line, but by many others, it was kind of named as the unsinkable vessel. One even made the arrogant statement, even God could not sink the Titanic. With those things in mind, we might look inside it. The phenomenal, luxurious facilities at that time, 1912, the millionaire suites, 50 some odd feet long, 
The, the gymnasiums, the saunas, the, the various things that was amenities that was just unheard of at that time. A great amount of preparation was made. Not so much as far as the vessel itself, but they had planned on eating well. When we think in terms of on that maiden voyage and all of the food and the things and the ice cream and milk and all of that that was just almost unheard of on a vessel of that nature. The maiden voyage was to leave Southampton, England and go to New York City. They had already planned and Phenomenal, great rejoicing because this was going to be a record-breaking trip. It was going to be made at a record-breaking speed. And they were already planning on great celebration when they arrived in New York City. People, many of them in fact, great wealthy people, traveled from America to Southampton, England just to be able to make and be a part of that maiden voyage. They went over there, not for reasons of going there, but except for coming back. And millionaires, there were many of them. At the turn of the century, around 1900, there weren't that many. But by 1912, because of the way everything was flourishing, according to statistical information, there were about 3,800. Several of them were a part of those that were on the Titanic. According to information that I've been able to gather together, some of which may be disputed because you have one saying one thing and another saying another, but probably the estimated worth of those that were on board was in excess of $500 million in 1912. You can only imagine what that would be now. It drew near time for it to journey its maiden voyage. And it had become such a fanfare thing. Uh, all of the promos and all of the, even in 1912, there was over 100,000 people that came to literally see it break away from its birth and to start its maiden voyage. A phenomenal event. On what was many referring to as the unsinkable Titanic. And all seemed well when they began. But unbeknowing to many of them, there was an iceberg many think to be several thousand miles, about a thousand, a little over a thousand miles away, hundreds of miles away that broke loose and was journeying down slowly, tragically, on a course of colliding. And that night, it sunk. Oh, it was a sudden collision. The circumstances at that particular night, 28 degree water, and it was eerie because most of the time, the waves against an iceberg would be kind of foamish to where those that were up in what I might call the cockpit and looking out over the sea could be able to see it ahead of time. And the moon would oftentimes be so bright that you could easily identify enough so to either be able to stop or make a right or left turn. But according to the information, it was eerily still and unable to be seen. And by the time they were able to see it, they made a frantic attempt to turn 
but impossible to avoid it. It crashed into the side. The rivets popped. The metal bulged. And suddenly water was pouring into the bulkheads. But that which they had planned was foolish on one particular respect. The bulkheads in the bottom of the Titanic, and they had big walls sectioning it off. But tragically, they didn't go all the way to the top of that compartment. And thus water splashed over from one to the other. And finally, after striking the iceberg at 11.40 p.m., it broke in half. The 800-plus feet vessel broke in half and sank at 2.20 a.m. You might think in terms of the ships that might potentially be close by, and there were several. And the irony of the matter is what we're going to talk about in a moment concerning why one in particular could not reach them in time to actually remove the people off of the Titanic, thereby avoiding the tragedy of death at night. So let's transition now. Enough about the mechanics and the statistical information. Let's look to this book and pull some spiritual lessons from that tragedy. Lesson number one. An iceberg, as it appears in the water, only about 10% of it is above the water line. That means 90% and usually going down at an angle is below the waterline. An iceberg is extremely deceptive. You see something, you think, well, it's not so big. Even if the Titanic ran into it, well, it just plow right through it. Not so. When you look at where the actual iceberg hit and the ice that was thrown up onto the decks, where the people were, even some of those that survived, able to testify the projected height of the iceberg was approximately 100 feet out of water. Then if you take that and amateurize it from the standpoint of that which was below the water level and the approximate weight of it, the Titanic weighed 46,000 tons. They project the iceberg to have weighed 20 times that. No wonder when the, uh, when the Titanic struck that iceberg, it ripped into its side. Icebergs are deceptive. But you know, in our spiritual life, sin is that way, is it not? Satan dangles before us those things that he wants us to be involved in, that he wants us to do. And sin looks so good. I mean, others are doing it. They're not paying any consequences. I'm enticed and maybe allured to that the involvement of that. Maybe it's drinking. And you see all those commercials on television of the water flowing down, the waterfalls over this mountainous scene, and it looks gorgeous. The big, bold horses walking around, and they're beautiful and Satan would never allow us to see the finished product of the brewer's art. He wouldn't let us see that slobbering drunk in a gutter, in a ditch, 
after colliding with someone, maybe taking the life of someone. You see, sin is deceptive. Sin will take you further than you want to go. It'll keep you longer than you want to stay. It'll cost you so much more than you want to pay. Satan doesn't care because once he's got you hooked, that's all that matters. So in a similar way to an iceberg, sin is deceptive. We're told in Romans 3, verse 23, all have sinned. In Romans 6 and 23, the wages of sin is death. In other words, the spiritual death. We need to learn not to fall prey to that. Lesson number two. Things that oftentimes are somewhat of a priority to us, somewhat of a matter of importance to us at the time, may actually keep us from that which is more important and more urgent. Let me illustrate it. On the Titanic, there were not those that had cell phones that could call back and talk to those. They had a telegraph, and that telegraph operator, and he would sit there and operate that, and he would oftentimes send messages back to the home office, maybe of the businessmen, or maybe it was just the rejoicing of those that were very wealthy and talking to the family and telling them what a fabulous place and how great it was and how much they were having such great fun and, and whatever, but they were keeping the telegraph quite busy. But at the same time, warnings were being received by ships nearby telling them there's icebergs in your area. You need to be careful. In fact, there were several warnings. Enough so that the men of power, the men of great wealth, wielded their influence and basically told the telegraph operator, don't let them come through. You take care of my message. And even one of the ships, who was the closest by, they received that message of don't bother us or something to that effect. And that ship turned off its telegraph radio. You see, things that were important at that time to those men, those businessmen, the men of wealth, ultimately shut down that which was the most important and ultimately became the death knell of all. You know, we're guilty of that, are we not? We sometimes see material things, recreational things, involvement in things that in and of themselves are not wrong. Eddie and I were talking up here a few minutes ago concerning how we get so enamored, so consumed with the things of the world and, and we forget what's most important. Our soul and this day and using this day to the glory of God, to the pleasing of God and making sure that we're laying up treasures in heaven, Matthew chapter 6. As we press toward the mark of the prize of the high calling, Philippians chapter 3 as we are looking to that mansion that our Savior has gone to prepare, John chapter 14. And I began to look, and, and I've got almost blinders on, and I can hardly see. I've got this little bitty place here that I can barely see, and I don't see beyond. I'm not looking to Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith, as I should be. I'm not literally focusing on the things that are eternal. I'm thinking on things that are Temporary, monument, just momentary. 
I'm, I'm going to have them here. Things that I am not even in control of. What do I mean by that? What do we have? You say, well, I've got a bank account. I've got some land. I've got some cars. I've got a home. Whatever, whatever, and we might itemize it. Actually, you don't have those things. Stop and think about it. When you draw your last breath, they're no longer yours. It's not a matter in which we possess them. It's a matter in which we are mere stewards over them. We have them in our control momentarily, but when we die, we're going to pass them on to somebody else. And thus, how foolish of us, if we were to dare think in terms of those things, carnal things, temporary things, to the neglect of spiritual matters. They worried about things, and many of them died that night. Number three, we learn the lesson that we should prepare properly. The Titanic, a normal protocol would have been for it to have gone out on a maiden voyage, kind of a, around the harbor, just kind of go out on a trial run, as we might call it. They didn't do that. They didn't think they needed to. When it pulled away from the berth, it literally was so hot, so huge and so deep and weighed so much that the mere waves almost capsized some nearby smaller vessels. They thought that all of the lifeboats originally planned for 64 lifeboats, each holding about 65 people. They don't need all of that. I mean, the foolishness of having all that, taking up the architecture there on the boat, maybe we can expand the millionaire suites or other amenities that we really want to focus on. So they reduced the number of the lifeboats from 64 down to 16. When we begin to do the math, 16 times 65. And on the Titanic, there was 1,316 passengers and 891 crew people. I mentioned a moment ago concerning the food. They planned on eating well. 43 tons of meat, 40 tons of potatoes, 1,750 quarts of ice cream, 1,500 gallons of milk. You see where their priority was? They prepared for feasting. They didn't prepare for any tragedy. They didn't make proper preparation. Is it possible that we're guilty of that spiritually? We focus our attention on education. Our own, our children, our grandchildren. Nothing wrong with that unless we neglect God. We lay up for our retirement. And no doubt many of us are familiar with those that have done that for years and decades and then left this earth before they enjoyed hardly a day of it. We lay up for a lot of other things, kind of a nest egg, and we're going, instead of possibly and very likely doing all that we can with that which we are stewards of in the glory and the propagation of the Lord's work. You see, we're guilty of not preparing properly too in the way that we should You say, well, now, wait a minute, Paul. I mean, you know, you know we've just got to make plans. I understand that, and I, I do as well. I mean, I make plans and, and I plan ahead. And 
But I've got to realize that I've got to balance it and put a priority on really these plans compared to the eternal plans. That rich man that was having a great year, remember? I mean, it was, and my barns are too small. I'm going to tear those barns down, build greater barns. And God said, this night thy soul shall be required of thee. The various ones, the rich man and Lazarus, as we read in Luke's account of the gospel record, how that he fared sumptuously every day, but he left God out of his life. He didn't make proper preparation. Oh, he had much of this world's goods, and there was a beggar man that laid out there at his gates, and all he wanted was the crumbs that fell from his table. Couldn't even knock the dogs off as they licked their sores, and the rich man didn't prepare. And according to that record in Luke's account, he lifted up his eyes in torment and said, Father Abraham, send Lazarus and let him dip his finger in water and, and cool my tongue, for I'm tormented. He didn't prepare. We make similar mistakes at times. Number four, we need to understand that life is fragile. We're frail. Oh, we're strong, we think at times. I can take on the world and I can do this and I can do that. And maybe in younger days, I was very guilty of that. I thought I was invincible. I, I'm going to live forever almost. Now at age 72, I know better. If I'd only thought and considered what the Bible taught, I would have known better then in younger ages. You see, the blood that pulsates through my veins all it takes is a clot I realize that my heart is beating and quite emotionally I can refer to 1980 when my father had had a heart attack four and a half years before and according to the doctors they said his heart that muscle just exploded that Monday morning after closing a gospel meeting the night before. We don't know what's going on inside. A little over two years ago, I was ready for a hip replacement surgery. But they found something about my heart that they wanted to check further. They found that I had a 95% blockage. I didn't have a clue. I mean, and they ended up putting a stent in and opened it up and I'm fine. I could have died that day without even knowing why. My body, our lives are fragile. Left the motel a little while ago. Pulled up to the red light, stopped, waited for it to turn green. I advanced a little bit, but I noticed out of the peripheral vision, here comes a car. And they plowed right on through. About five of us managed to get stopped. Yes, I did blow my horn. You know, he could have plowed into my side and I wouldn't be possibly standing here tonight. Life's fragile, frail. We have no promise of tomorrow. In other words, I can look at those rivets and see how they bulged and popped. I can, I can think of that metal being literally torn asunder. I mean, it was fragile. They didn't think so. We don't think so. But it's actually as fragile as our blood, our heart, everything working properly. Number five, 
There were warnings. They failed to hear them and failed to heed them. The Karana at 9 a.m. that day telegraphed them saying there's icebergs. Again at 142, the Baltic at 145, the America, the Californian at 730, the Rappanock at 940, the Californian again at 11 o'clock. Multiple warnings came in to the Titanic telling them, you better slow down. You better be careful. There is definitely icebergs in your area. The latest warning was at 11 o'clock. They struck the iceberg at 1140. Spiritually, how many warnings do we have from our God, our loving Father, the inspired writings of our God? that tell us to take heed lest ye fall. That warn us of Satan, his wiles, and how that he will have fiery darts that he would charge at us with, Ephesians 6. He's walking about as a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour, 1 Peter 5 and verse 8. There are false teachers that are teaching things that tickle our ears and make us feel good. I was flipping channels a mere few days ago and came across Joel Olstein. If ever there was a false teacher, if ever there was one that had people captured, as it were, in his hands, figuratively, and saying nothing of importance, not telling them what they need to do to follow Christ, not telling them how to reach heaven eternally, I believe that according to Paul's words to the Corinthian brethren, he is one of the ministering servants that Satan has that appears as an angel of righteousness, but actually, right the opposite. We have the warnings. Do we not believe them? Dare we think that God is not telling us the truth? Number six, we need to learn the lesson of don't travel too fast. They were on a record-breaking pace. They wanted to reach New York. They had already planned the celebration. They literally, I mean, it was going to put a feather in their hat of the White Star Line because they had never crossed the ocean at such a speed. I wonder if we are guilty of traveling too fast. Mac Davis, some of us may remember several years ago, had a song, Stop and Smell the Roses. I wonder if we do that. You see, our lives oftentimes is going from one fire, putting that out to get to another fire, to put that out to get a third fire. I mean, it's the tyranny of the urgent in our lives. We're literally, frantically, never seems catching up. The accommodations this week in the motel, very, very convenient, and thank you for that. Away from the normal life, daily life and activities, I was blessed to be able to do several things on the computer, edited six television programs, wrote part of a book concerning training men to lead in worship, etc. You see, it's only times, though, at 
in, in special times, that, that, that we get away from our crunch of a life and maybe can do some things that we'd really like to do. They didn't pay any attention. Number seven, we learn from the Titanic tragedy that wealth was worthless. I mentioned earlier concerning the millionaires. Many of them were very wealthy. We know that on board was Astor, the one that Astoria Hotel is named after. Benjamin Gutenheim, a businessman. The Astor Hotel, as well as Isidore Strauss, the one that started Macy's, as well as a congressman. Charles Hayes, quite involved in railroad. And you see, they were wealthy. But what we learned from that tragedy, because the lifeboats were so scarce and not able to accommodate all of them, and here were men that were millionaires many times over. And don't you know that they would have given every penny for one seat on that lifeboat? Those in charge were saying women and children only. The men were left behind. Do we not hear the words of Paul to Timothy in 1 Timothy 6 where we brought nothing into this world, we carry nothing out? The love of money being the root of all evil. And yet it seems today that our, our goal is to accumulate, is to have more and more. If we have this much, we want a little bit more. We have that much, we want some more. And we are never satisfied in years past, I'm told of those that would sit on the porch at the close of day after working in the field, almost having nothing, maybe potatoes or beans to eat with cornbread or something of that nature, the staple food as it were. But the happiness and the joy that they had, many of us have never experienced. Wealth meant nothing that night. Number eight, we learn that we should accept the reality of death. And we're not going to live here. This is not our home. This is not our final abode. And we've read that in the scripture time and time again. It's appointed unto man once to die, and after that the judgment, Hebrews 9 and verse 27. But that night when they struck the iceberg... And even ice on the decks. And comments according to some of the survivors was, it's just a joke. This is the Titanic. There's nothing to worry about. And they literally kept on dancing and singing and eating and doing what they were doing. They didn't believe. But Captain Smith and his crew, ironically, the last voyage that he was planning to make and retire Within 20 minutes, Captain Smith knew they were doomed. There was nothing that could be done and that they would sink. Number nine, 
we learn that we need to get in the lifeboat. Do you know that the first two lifeboats that were deployed were only partially filled? A capacity of about 65, <clears throat> according to the size of those that were owned. And the first two had only 25 to 35 people. You see, they didn't believe. They didn't know for sure. The water was 28 degrees. It was dark outside. They had on their best clothes. They didn't want to put a vest on and get into that lifeboat and put it over the side. And they even made fun of those that did get in a boat. They failed to get in the lifeboat. God has told us about the way of salvation. The place of safety, the place of salvation is the church. And tragically, how many of us have known of those that have been taught? They know what the Bible says, but they just put it off. They don't get in the lifeboat. My family and I lived in Jackson, Missouri, down in the boot hill in the 1970s. 1973, we went there. The church had only begun in 1969, four years before, 30-some-odd members. We left five years later at 130 members. But, full folks, we scratched and clawed for every one because many of the men were not members. Most of them were women. There were over a half dozen men that were there most of the time. But they failed <clears throat> to act. One of them, his name was Fred. Fred would work at his job. He'd get into discussions on the job. He would tell them exactly what this book said. He would tell them that they were wrong in following this particular denomination. They'd come back and say, Fred, why aren't you a member? Well, I'm going to one of these days. I plan to one of these days. I'm not sure I can do it just yet. And that's what he told me as well. I went to the elders after about three years, and I told them, I said, Brethren, I have tried everything I know to do, and I feel like I've failed. I haven't converted. I haven't baptized any of those men. I offered to even resign. Maybe someone else can do a better job. Less than six months later, one Sunday morning, I don't even remember now what I was preaching on, and Fred stepped out of the aisle. And he looked at Estel and he said, you going to? J.R. followed. We baptized six of those men that Sunday morning. Before Fred died, he became an elder of the Lord's church. They got in the lifeboat. Number 10. Help can be so near and yet so far. The Californian was only 10 miles away from the Titanic when he struck the iceberg. But go back with me about 20 minutes ago when I told you about the telegraph incident. It was the Californian that was trying to warn them, knowing that they were close. It was the Californian that the ones operating the telegraph told the cow, those operating the telegraph in the California, don't bother us. So they turned their telegraph off. 
were so close, but they couldn't communicate with them. The California didn't see the flares. As close as they were, they were far away. The Carpathian was 58 miles away and did not arrive until about 4 a.m. after the Titanic sank at 2.20. We can be so close to salvation. Many of our religious friends believe with all of their heart, have desired to turn from their sins and confess Christ, but refuse to be baptized. They're close, but they're still far away. Moses took too much glory, and because of that, God would not allow him to enter the promised land. On the other side of the mountain, looking through the valley, from Mount Nebo, he saw the land, but was not allowed. To, he was close, but yet so far. Felix would say in the book of Acts, Almost thou persuadest me to be a Christian. But we sing the song, Almost is but to fail. Almost to no avail. We can't be just almost. Paul said to Felix, I would that you are as I, that is completely submerged in doing the will of God. Number 11. Families were separated. This is one that gets me. You see, we're on this earth. We're human. We're flesh and blood. We're told, 1 Thessalonians 4, 1 Thessalonians 4, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, but we are here now in that flesh and blood form. LaDon and I, in a few days, will celebrate our 54th wedding anniversary. I love that precious lady with all of my heart. We've been through so much together. The death of our firstborn, she lived only six weeks. We had a house to burn. We had a six-foot, eight-inch flood in our home one day back in Missouri. We endured those things. Been through two tornadoes. But the mere idea of reaching down and helping her to get into that lifeboat and me staying behind, you're talking about emotionally tearing at your heart, family separated, knew they were going to die. But that's nothing compared to Matthew 25, 46. Talking about the righteous, these shall go into everlasting life. But others, everlasting punishment. In various places, no doubt, we know of, of maybe a wife that is a Christian, a husband that's not, a husband that is a Christian, the wife is not, or children that are not, or whatever it may be, and how it tears us apart. To know that if that doesn't change, they're going to be separated eternally. 
number 12 and last. The end is coming. Oh, they didn't think so. They thought, man, we're on the Titanic. Everything's wonderful. Nothing can bother us. We may be sailing through life and thinking that we're invincible. Dr. Cooper was his name, is his name, there in Pulaski. He was a vascular surgeon, one of the best that there was. Bedside manner, impeccable. I respected him so much. Columbia's 30 miles away. He had been operating in the surgical facility there that day and he was trying to get back to Wednesday night services in Pulaski. He was driving too fast and a curve. And it rained a little bit earlier. And the car slammed into a telephone pole. The Acura that he had, the telephone pole, if that was the front of it, and the steering wheel is here, the pole went in here and it went within 14 inches of cutting the car in two. He survived, but the brainstem injury stopped his career on the way to worship. A normal day. During the worship that night at East Hill, I saw a nurse come in the back door, come over to the side and get it. Ernest, Dr. Cooper's wife, Susan. I knew something was wrong. It was near the end of class. As soon as it was over, I went back, and they said he's had a wreck. LaDonna and I went out the Columbia Highway about eight miles where the wreck took place, and I fell to my knees when I saw the car. They still had not removed him from that. We went on to Columbia Hospital and then immediately to St. Thomas in Nashville. He was there for 30-some-odd days in a coma over two weeks a brainstem injury. I tell you all of that to be able to say, in a blink of an eye, life can completely change. Our little Stephanie Michelle was six weeks old. LaDon had been sick that day. My office was in the house. This was 1966. She, put, she took care of the baby. She fed her, laid her down for a nap. And about an hour and 10 minutes later, went in to check on her. We assumed that what is normally called SIDS today, she was already blue what appeared to be a normal day and instantly it changed our lives the end is coming do we dare make the mistake of thinking that we are unsinkable are we foolishly thinking that the world will not come to an end this is our life and, and this is where we're going to be and, and this is where we're going to is it possible that we're nearing the last lifeboat and we just haven't gotten in yet? Do we not hear Amos 4.12 saying, Prepare to meet thy God? 
this tragedy where hundreds died that night over a hundred years ago, it can fine-tune our thoughts spiritually. We can learn if we listen. We can change if we will. We can be saved, and we must. If you're not a Christian, you need to believe in Jesus Christ. Repent from your sins. Confess him before men and be immersed in water to have your sins washed away. If you're erring in his sight, you need to confess your faults. Pray one for another. The effectual, fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. James 5. I'll be down here. Brother Randy will be here. But you're not coming to us. You see, we're, we're just servants. We're just ones that are trying to do the Lord's bidding and, and carry the good news to the world. But you're coming to him. He has the power to save you. Won't you come as we stand and sing?